0: everyone. Welcome to Med Ed Soundbites. Today our topic is going to be talking about on shift and bedside teaching, how to provide effective feedback, and then we're also going to talk about teaching bedside procedures. We have with us Dave Manthe today who's our expert guest. My name is Ashley Heaney. I'm one of the associate program directors at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. And hi, I'm Julie Taunt. I'm the academic EM fellow at Eastern Virginia Medical School. So Dave, Tell me about some of your favorite bedside teachers that you've had throughout your career, and then what are some of the qualities that have made them great?
1: The qualities that make a bedside teacher great are the ones that push me a little bit further when I'm at the bedside and ask me questions to figure out where I need to learn. The ones who can identify where I'm struggling and then give me a hint to move on are the ones that I took the most from people who stop my bedside work in order to give me a lecture on something that I know most of the stuff about, that just creates anxiety. I'm wanting to get back to the patient. I'm wanting to move on. But if they can identify where I'm struggling or where they've struggled in the past, that's much more helpful to me to give me clinical pearls. The other bedside teacher that I think about is somebody who is extremely competent, somebody who I recognize that I want to be like. And that may not be the total person. It may be, I want to be like this person when I deal with a difficult patient. I want to be like this person when I deal with a, a case that I just can't figure out. I want to be like this person when I'm putting in a central line. You can gather stuff from multiple different clinical teachers.
2: Great. Now that we've talked about what qualities make for good bedside teaching, let's talk about how to actually do this. So what strategies do you use for effective bedside teaching?
1: A multitude, depending on what the situation requires, sometimes they've done a really good job and I'm just doing effective questioning. I'm trying to figure out what they were thinking and why they did what they did. Sometimes students, residents just get lucky in being able to do the right thing or they're doing what somebody else did in the past and they don't really understand why they're doing that. I find that if you can talk with them and teach them why we do what we do, they can apply that to more than one situation. So that's beneficial. I don't find it very helpful to just give facts. Those are things that they can go look up. I want to help them think through a patient and how to take care of a patient or how to deal with a specific issue. Now, lots of people will say, well, I just don't I don't know what to teach on each one. You can fix that in a lot of ways. You can do some teaching scripts. So we all have teaching scripts in our mind about a specific disease or a specific presentation. This is how I approach somebody who comes in with vertigo, right, that dizziness that scares us all. So you could have that and you could teach that. Another way to do it is you could say, okay, so that's great, this patient's all taken care of, but what if they were pregnant? What if they were allergic to that drug? What if they were taking a blood thinner, right? So those are other thoughts that we can put in their head and push them a little bit further. Often in patients, you can take it to the nth degree. Right. So you have somebody who's a COPD or comes in and they say, Great, I've got them on some nebulized beta agonist and I've given them a steroid and they're doing better. Push them. What if they don't get better? What are you going to do next? What if we have to intubate? What are you going to do now? What if we get them on the ventilator and they start stacking breaths? What are you going to do now? Because what you've done is taken what they've shown you. I know this and you push it a little bit further. It also allows you to become extremely comfortable with a very sick patient, right? If you take care of a patient that goes to that nth degree where you are manipulating the modes of the ventilator to keep their PCO2 down and keep their oxygen up, then everything else before that becomes easy. So I find that bedside teaching is best when you advance their knowledge, their understanding, or their skills.
0: Great. I think that's awesome advice. So we're all busy emergency room doctors. How do you find time to teach during a busy shift when you're getting handed EKGs, asking to go see this patient in triage, being told there's a trauma coming in? How do you deal with all of that and still find time to provide good teaching on shift?
1: Well, lots of different ways. One, I don't see them as obstacles. I see them as opportunities. So you just said they hand me an EKG, right? So I take a look at that EKG and then I hand it to my learner and say, we're specifically looking for an MI, can you tell me what what different uh, findings might key you into an MI, especially if it's an abnormal EKG? I might hand them a left bundle branch block and say, let me know if you know Scarbosa's criteria and look at this. And if they say, I don't know Scarbosa's criteria, I go, boom, let's go. Let's go right onto the computer. Let's pull up a couple of EKGs. Let's show you Scarbosis criteria and walk through it. If they say, I know Scarbosis criteria, I have them go through it. And then I introduce modified Scarbosis criteria. So there's teaching right there. If they ask me to come out and see somebody in the triage area, right? I say, come with me. Here's what they're going to ask me to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how I do it quickly, right? And then the next one you get to do and I'll watch you. So I'm modeling right? Sometimes I will say to the junior, like I'll say to the intern, come with me while we go look at all your patients that just got turned over to you. Or I'll say to the medical student, hop in my back pocket. I'm going to go around and talk to each one of these. And as we walk in the room, I tell them what I'm thinking. And as we leave the room, I explain to them why I asked the questions I did or why I did the exam that I did. All of that is teaching that is pinpoint to a specific patient. I find that Often residents go to work and they see a patient and they move on, right? And they're losing that opportunity for that patient, especially the the difficult or the really sick patient, to actually be a coat rack upon which they hang information right? So one of the things we do actually is we read a book, right? So we read something on say pyelonephritis and we go, we've got it. We understand pyelonephritis. Somebody asks us two weeks later. We're like, yeah, I don't really remember. It's because you don't have something to hang it on. If you have a patient with pyelonephritis and that's the time when you're asked questions about when would you get a CT? When would you get a contrasted CT? What antibiotics would you use? Do they need IV antibiotics? Who needs to be admitted? What about in pregnancy? You have, your brain has, has a coat rack the patient to hang all that information on so the next time you have someone with pyelonephritis you will think about that patient and you'll think about the things that we talked about it's not just about putting things in your memory it's about putting things in your memory in such a way that you can retrieve them right so I tell my wife all the time that I've got a brain like a steel trap I just can't open it up
2: any tools or apps that you use to teach
1: Not specifically. There is a program that uh, my school purchases. It's called a visual diagnosis and it runs through a lot of diagnoses. So my interns and my medical students, I send to that. There's lots of them out there. There's Wikiem that we use. I find it easiest to decide on the topic that I'm teaching them, Julie, and I'll pull up stuff that fits with that. So after I've done that for a while, I know where to go get the Scarbosa criteria that I want. know where to go get the LP video that I want. And each time I teach, I keep a list of those, uh, usually just mentally. and, And I know how what I type in to get to them on the computer. So do I use specific apps? No, because then I find that the app takes over the teaching and I want the app to be an addition to what I'm teaching.
0: We've talked a lot about active questioning on shift, and I think this is one great way to have more active learning. Are there any other tips or tricks you use to avoid passive learning and steer your students and residents to more active learning?
1: Yeah, I I do a technique called think out loud. So when I'm worried about a patient, I will specifically say, okay, this person has gone into AFib with RVR and they're septic. Right. And I want to treat the AFib with RVR what are the things that I want to look at? And so we'll talk about whether or not I want to look at their heart squeeze or whether or not I look at the IVC and see whether or not they've gotten enough fluid or whether or not I'm going to chase pain or fever as a cause that is accelerating their AFib with RVR, right? And then I'll talk about the drugs that we're going to use, whether or not I'm going to use a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker and what that will do to the blood pressure in the septic patient or whether or not I want to use amiodarone or whether or not I just want to shock them, right? And I'll talk about the pros and cons of each one of those. So just to think out loud of everything that goes through your mind when you're trying to decide, what am I going to do with this patient? I find that the residents really like that because they see what you think are the most important things to figure out before you make a decision.
2: This has been a great discussion so far, kind of moving on. So for feedback, we all talk about it, but we often do a terrible job at it. So let's talk about what defines good feedback.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really difficult one because you can go through a ton of different ways to give feedback. I think that a lot of people use uh, the smart mnemonic, right? Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. But I think sometimes we get a little bit mixed up. I think that it's not the person. It's actually the behavior that you want to change, right? And you want to explain why that, cha- that behavior should be changed. In other words, what are the bad aspects of the behavior or what are the good aspects of the behavior if you're trying to encourage them to keep it, right? And then timely, I don't think timely necessarily means do it as quickly as you can, right? Because I think just like with giving feedback, you have to be ready to receive feedback, okay? So let's say you did something and you knew it was wrong right? As soon as you did it, you knew it was wrong and you were frustrated with yourself for making that mistake. Me coming behind and piling on that is of no benefit whatsoever. So I need you to work through the fact that you're frustrated with yourself and then you'll be able to talk with me. And then we'll be able to do it, right? So I think the person giving feedback needs to monitor that the person receiving feedback is ready to receive it. And I think as a learner, you have to say that you're not ready to hear that right now that you need a little bit of time to process it yourself. We act like the learner is oblivious to what they did. And unless we speak up, they will never figure it out. And I just don't think that's true. I think they often know that they've done stuff wrong. And when we approach them, they go into the usual protective manner, which is let me defend myself about why I did what I did. And they're not listening. They're being defensive at that point. That is human nature. That is absolutely appropriate. That's preserving of yourself. I understand that. But at some point, they're going to go, Okay, what could I do to prevent this from happening again? Right. And that might be an hour later. That might be at the end of the shift. That might be, let's talk about this the next time we're together. Right. I'll see you in conference tomorrow. Can we take five minutes to go over this? So I think timely has more to do with the fact that it fits with when they're ready to receive information, right? And that's obviously not two weeks later, but it might be hours later and it might be in the next shift. I think there are other ways to look at it as well. I think the RISE model is another interesting piece to do, which is to say, let them reflect on what happened, inquire about what they did or didn't do and why they did it, suggest different ways to do it, And then talk with them about what they might do to do better next time. So elevate it. So I kind of like the RISE model because it is forward thinking. It's always a growth mentality. It always believes that the learner is capable of getting better, wants to get better. And you're a guide on the side rather than somebody with a switch to say, don't do that again. You're more along the lines of, okay, we recognize that we shouldn't have done this. Let's inquire about how it could be done differently. Here are some suggestions I have. What else are you thinking of? That means that you're walking side by side with them. And it says to them that my goal is to make you better. One thing I didn't say, Julian Ashley, earlier on is that I think another important piece is that they are comfortable coming to you and showing what they don't know right? So most learners know they're being evaluated. And so they don't ever want to show what they don't know. They only want to show what they do know. So they start to pick up the patients they feel comfortable with and they shy away from the patients they don't feel comfortable with because that's going to make them look incompetent. I switch that around and I say, okay, what do you want to work on today? And if my resident, my medical student says, I want to work on people who are dizzy, right? I say, great. I'm going to assume You are having difficulty in the dizzy area, and we're going to work through this so you can have limited knowledge, limited ability, and it's absolutely okay because you've already identified that. So there's no assessment of your ability except for to advance it. When you give residents and students the ability to say, hey, Dr. Heaney, I don't understand this at all. And you say, great, let's move forward. Think of how much nicer it is for them, right? Rather than saying, oh my gosh, I don't want her to know that I don't know how to do this. So let me shy away from it or let me try to bully my way through it or let me try to alter the presentation so she doesn't ask about that. That's what they do because they're defensive about not knowing something. I say to them, I want to, I want you to learn something new on this shift. So let's, let's take something you don't know and let's work with that all day. And then guess what? That's only one approach, right? I don't believe, I don't believe in the world according to Manthe, right? So I say, this is how I do it. And this is why I do it, but I want you to go talk to two other attendings and see how they do it. And, you know, they go, oh my gosh, but then, but then, you know, I got to go, how does this attending do it? That's the way I need to do it. And I say, actually, what you now know is three. Different, good, within the standard of care, approaches to the same symptomatology. Pick the one that works best for you. And when it doesn't work best, you've got two others in your pocket.
0: Great. Thank you. So let's shift and talk about another thing that I find difficult to teach on shift. Let's talk about teaching procedures. And we've all done it. I've done it. How do we avoid being the attending, standing in the corner, yelling at the resident or the medical student over and over again and just saying, no, that's wrong. Don't do that. Stop. Do it this way instead. How do we actually teach the procedure successfully and provide real-time constructive feedback to the learner?
1: Right, so we're gonna ignore the fact that they should have already been taught on it before they attempt it, right? Uh, so, so one of the things I always ask is that, have you ever done one of these before, right? Um, and if they haven't, it depends on how difficult the procedure is and sometimes they will learn from me doing it. I know that's passive learning, but they can watch how an expert works through it. If they've done it in the past, I will ask certain questions that make sure I know that they know how to do it, right? So it could be as simple as, what do you need to do an LP? And if they can't tell me what they need to do an LP, then they probably shouldn't be doing it. I may ask, what are the difficult points that you hit the last time you couldn't get an LP, right? So that I can work through what they have difficulty with. I may actually start teaching and say, listen, there's two things that happen when doing an LP that make it very difficult to get the LP done. One is positioning right? So we're not perpendicular to the floor. And so we're missing an angle. And when we miss that angle, our our needle goes just scything by the tube. So we need to really make sure that that is in position, right? So I might talk to them about those pieces that they get in trouble with. The other thing I do is I come up with a a statement that means stop what you're doing without me saying, stop what you're doing, right? And usually uh, that is calling their first name, or that is saying, may I show you another way to approach this, right? So when they hear those words, right, they stop what they're doing. And then I haven't embarrassed them, right? And I tell the patient ahead of time, as we're doing this, we may need to make some adjustments. So we're going to be talking back and forth about how to do this best and most comfortable for you so that the patient isn't worried if I say, Ashley, may I show you something different? right? I find that we do this, right? So when they know that term is coming, it's no longer a no or stop. They will stop what they're doing when I say that. And then we can work through that. And sometimes may I show you a different way means get out of my way. I'm going to take it over and I'm going to do this part of the procedure, both for patient safety, for timing, because you don't know what you're doing, et cetera. And the patient then expects that because I've already told them that we may be working back and forth to get this done.
2: Great. And I think building off of that, um, sometimes depending on where learners are, they may encounter inconsistent teaching or hear multiple tricks of the trade, which could sometimes lead to poor procedure learning habits. Do you have any advice of how to kind of prevent this?
1: Yeah, this becomes that thing of I have this neat way to do something and I want to teach you, but you don't even know how to do the procedure. So we really need to make sure they have the basics of the procedure down and any institution can decide on what their basics are. Then after they have the basics down or when they run into an issue, that's when we can start talking about our tricks to get past that piece. But let's not confuse tricks of the trade with the way to teach them a basic procedure, it's not. We have to teach them the steps which they need to do, talk to them about conservation of movement, talk to them about uh, setting the patient up, all the key things that work. Then we can say, I have found that you know, instead of doing that, I might do this. And so it's an additive. It's the second piece. It isn't like Learn my way. And then somebody else will teach you a different way. Students just become confused. And remember, we lock it away in our memory when it is relevant to us at that moment. So it depends on the learner. If the learner is absolutely new at putting in a central line, then just showing them how to identify the IJ is gonna be the thing that sticks in their head or how to line up their equipment so that they grab for the needle first, the wire second, the scalpel third, et cetera. But somebody who's advanced at it, it may actually be talking about dropping the the angle of the needle and spinning the wire so that you can get past a valve or a turn, right? Because that's what they're running into at that point. But if you gave everything to the novel learner, right? Or the person who's done it only for the third time, they're not going to remember most of it. So you got to move back to your basics. So I think this comes back to what does your learner know and where does your learner need help, right? That's what you need to be teaching them. And at some points, it's going to be the basics. And at some points, it's going to be the tricks of the trade.
0: So lastly, we touched on it a little bit earlier when you were talking about having a safe phrase for the learner about when to stop and take a second and take a step back. How do you handle the situation in the room where the patient doesn't have confidence in the learner? What are some tricks you have for bridging that?
1: Help me out a little bit more on what you're expressing to do a procedure or- correct.
0: So when you go in to do a procedure and they see you, and obviously you have a lot more experience than the student that's with you or the resident that's with you, how do you not let the patient lose confidence in your learner when you're providing them feedback during a procedure?
1: Uh, Lots of different ways. Uh, one, I try to remind them that although I'm an expert in doing the procedure, that the person in the room with me, the resident, has probably done one in a shorter period of time than I have. Like, So I may not have done an LP in three or four months, and they may have done an LP last week. And I will remind them that having two sets of hands in on the procedure and two eyes looking for everything is more beneficial than having an individual person do it. I really haven't had much trouble with probably because we're a a, a teaching institution with people refusing to let a learner do it and demanding me. I find more that they want me in the room. They want me to be there. And I tell them kind of what... My surgeon told me when I got some sinus surgery, right? So he was working near my brain and he said, Dave, a resident's gonna be working with me. I'm gonna let them do the things that they can do as well as I can do, but I'm gonna be there to watch them. When we're doing stuff that is technically difficult, it's either gonna be my hands or my hands on their hands to make sure nothing goes wrong. And so I kind of say the same thing, right? There's only a couple of things that are really important in this procedure. I will be here for them, I will be guiding their hands, and so it'll be just as if I'm doing it to reassure the patient. I find if the patient has trust in you as the attending, they then have trust that you're not gonna let that learner make a mistake.
2: Yes, thank you so much for um, talking with us today. I think we've learned a lot. We really appreciate your advice and words of wisdom. So in summary, I feel today we've kind of learned, one, use effective questioning, why you are doing what you're doing. Don't just let the learners and yourself give or teach facts, ask a lot of what if questions. Use being busy as an opportunity, not an obstacle. Regarding feedback, timely doesn't always mean right now. It's important to know your learner is in a space to receive feedback. Always let the learner know your goal is to make them better and give them a safe space to tell you what they don't know and what they need to work on. And regarding procedures, come up with a statement that signals to the learner to stop what they're doing, such as, may I show you something different? And then inform the patient and the learner of this phrase so everyone is comfortable.
1: Julie, you made me sound like I know what I'm doing. Thank you very much.